Glad you're here tonight. We're in 1 Corinthians 15. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles. We're going to go through a lot of information, and I was thinking about that. Have you ever been on an airplane, and the first time the flight attendant gives all the instructions, you just listen intently because you want to know, what do you do? You know, why does that thing come down and, and all? But after you've flown a time or two, what you realize is you're, nobody's listening. You know, they're up there just kind of going through the drill. The exception to that, though, is if you sit on the exit uh, by the plane, I mean by the wing. You know, if you've ever done that, and then they'll come and they'll look at you and they'll want to reply, do you understand your obligation to sit here? And you have to say, it's kind of like to me when you're trying to um, update software or something, and you have this huge thing you're supposed to agree to, and you just scroll on down and you hit the accept. And you say, I have read everything. And you just scroll through three, four dozen pages, you know. And you haven't read anything. You just want to get on with it. Um, I'm going to share quite a bit of information in the lesson tonight. And as a part of me, I feel like that flight attendant, at the end I want to say, do you agree? You know, do you consent? Or are you with me on this? And not be the kind of thing where you just go through it and think, well, I don't really need this. Or this is not really important. Because what we're talking about is doctrinal purity. It's one of those things that we don't give a lot of uh, attention to or, or think we need until we need it. And so, as we go through this book, there's going to be some um, good things to mark down. In fact, if you came in and you didn't get a study guide, um, hey, just help yourself. Go back to the rack and grab you one if you'd like or get a piece of paper. This may be the kind of thing from 1 Corinthians 15 to... To, to write down these things, uh, maybe even put in the back of your Bible, because this is so foundational to what is pure doctrine. Um, and to gauge every message you hear in this building, everywhere you go, every uh, podcast you listen to, every book you read, to compare that to what is true Scripture. Because what we know is you can find a church that will teach just about anything and everything. Um, you know, and year, years ago, there was a, a mindset that you'd only listen to a preacher or read a book if he was written by somebody of, of your group, you know. Um, and then if they went to this school, then, then they were worth listening to. And if they did not or some other group, you didn't read that. Um, the problem with that is that you accepted things blindly and you didn't learn how to think for yourself. To listen and say, is it true? Is it right? I believe it's healthy to read all kinds of books and listen to all kinds of speakers with an ear of discernment and to be able to know, is that Bible? Is that truth? And to be able to listen to that and go, well, they got most of that right, but they missed it here. Or they got it all wrong. But to be able to have that kind of discernment. So we're going to be looking at that, what Paul was dealing with, trying to tell the church of Corinth. Because at Corinth at this time, there were these false teachers who were creating all kinds of, of havoc for the church there. One philosophy that was dominant in that day, and it couldn't help but make its way to, into the, the minds and the thinking of these early Christians, is that you could separate your physical body from your spiritual body. And so you could follow Christ in your spirit, but your physical body, for example, sexually, you could do whatever you wanted. And that's okay. Or the same, you could say, I follow Christ, but that doesn't affect my financial decisions. 
or that doesn't affect my political views. Those are two separate entities. And that was a very common thought for the people then. All of these things, though, were false teaching. And they were struggling with these. And I think we still struggle as well. Jesus warned us that there would be false teachers. They'd even be able to do signs and wonders. So just because somebody has all this extra doesn't mean necessarily we need to believe what they're saying. In fact, we need to watch out for them because they're really wolves in sheep's clothing. So before we get into 1 Corinthians 15, I want to uh, kind of share some false teachers, a list I came across. I think it's good just kind of by way of uh, introduction. Uh, the first person on the list, you're filling the blank, is the legislator. This is a kind of false teacher. The legislator is always coming up with new laws, new rules. That's where the name legislator comes from. For them, they're saying that it's mandatory that you not just be a follower of Jesus, you also have to obey these laws. And they are the ones that have that perfect example of the laws. It's being legalistic. It's what we're talking about. But it's more than that. It's not just saying Jesus is necessary for salvation. It's Jesus plus these laws that are not in Scripture. It's their interpretation. So for them, it was always Jesus plus something equals salvation. So be careful if you ever hear anyone say Jesus plus something equals salvation when that plus is not in Scripture at all. Well, here's another false teacher, the motivational speaker. This is Dr. Phil meets Tony Robbins. This is one that you enjoy listening to because they have an amazing presentation. You're inspired, you're entertained, you're empowered. But if you step back and listen to actually what they're saying, it's really more of a self-help message. It could be the same thing that you read in a Reader's Digest. And the message, instead of being legalistic like the legislator, this is more humanistic. It's all about you. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to think. Here's how you need to respond. Here's what we are able to accomplish. So when you listen to these messages, they tend to be full of lots of application. In fact, if you listen with a careful ear, what you notice is the, the scriptures kind of added in afterwards, kind of like an afterthought. Here's another false teacher. We should call him the superstar. This is the preacher that constantly is upstaging Jesus. You listen to them, at the end of the message, you know more about them than you do about the Lord. Every illustration they give is about their life, their family, and if you notice, they're always the hero. They're always the one that's having that successful Bible study with somebody in the neighborhood. They're always the one that's there serving. They're always the one that's getting that orphan out of the burning building. And they tell these stories, and after a while, you, you tend to notice, wait, there, there's a theme going on here. They're really good at what they do, or at least they want you to feel that way. So watch out when they're always the hero. Some of these are really good at self-promotion. Their pictures everywhere, their books are everywhere, always pushing some kind of product. Here's another one, number four. Call them the salesman. The salesman. I think many preachers, teachers, who fit this description are well-intentioned. They want people to come to Jesus. They want people to have salvation. They want people to be a part of a church. But in an effort to get people, they say things that people want to hear. The Bible says there will be teachers who say what itching ears want to hear. And that's what these preachers do. So they present the presentable parts of the Bible. The easier parts. But not the full truth. 
Sometimes they'll slip in the health and wealth false teaching. If you just follow God, then all your bills will be paid. If you follow God, then all your relationships will work out just perfectly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer pointed out that the cross pretty much put an end to the equation that Christianity equals comfort and security. So you've got to be careful of any false teacher, those kind of preachers, who instead are not giving you a cross to carry, but giving you a new car to drive or promising you all these things that Jesus is going to give you. So these salesman-type preachers, they mean well. And I think their motivation is good. They want the church to grow. They want people to come to know the Lord. But they gauge their success not by faithfulness in preaching, but by how many people are coming to the church. So sermons get sanitized, scriptures get edited. They're only sharing about 90% truth, which means 10% is not truth. You know what that means? It's false. Because they're not teaching the whole truth. Some people teach us that Jesus offers everything and requires nothing. So be wary when you're listening to a teacher or reading a book, somebody maybe who everybody else is listening to, if they don't use the words like sinner and repent and surrender and holiness and hell and commitment. My hope in our study tonight is that in 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be reminded of what is pure doctrine, the way Paul explains it here. I put a picture on the screen of two watches. Go ahead and advance to the next one. Rolexes. I want to ask you if you've got one. One of those is real, and the other one, as the slide says, is a replica. Now, if you were the maker of Rolex, you would say that's a nice word for a fake. A real one and a replica. Now, to most of us, especially with the picture at this distance, they look identical. And we wouldn't be able to pick which one's real and which one is, is the fake. I came across a website this week that has ways you can identify a real Ro Rolex. And, and there are several of them listed. One had 10, one had 14. Things like the secondhand movement is very smooth and continuous on a genuine Rolex. And when you have them side by side, you could notice that. Or if you notice over the date, they have that little magnifying part that uh, on the real Rolex, it's 2.5, and it's evidently very difficult to manufacture. And so the fake ones are not quite as large, so usually the numbers are larger to begin with because the magnification is not as much, and so little things like that. But in the picture, you and I can't tell. Couldn't tell at all which one's real and which one's fake because they have so many things in common. So let me ask you this question. What are the things about the gospel that make it doctrinally pure? What are some things about the gospel that make it doctrinally pure? We're going to go through the first half uh, of 1 Corinthians 15 tonight. And we're going to uh, move quickly through this. But I want to look at some different words. And I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles. And I'm going to give you some words to underline. Or you may rather use your notes and just fill in the blanks. And then a question to ask as we note these words and then a question that will go with them. First one starts off this way. It says, now brothers and sisters. And the word or words I want you to underline there are just that, brothers and sisters. Uh, some versions say brethren. Uh, technically in the Greek it just says brothers, but it's meant to be uh, inclusive. Uh, men and women. It's not just those males. He's talking to everybody there. 
And, and it's meant to be a, a, a term of endearment. Now, if you grew up going to church, you're used to people being called brother or sister. And you might even do that and say, brother this or sister that, and use the name. Now, if you didn't grow up going to church, it probably sounds weird. And, and you wonder, well, where did that come from? Or, or why do people call you that? But that term means there's a relationship within the church. And, and especially close because it's based on a common commitment to Jesus Christ. That's why you're my brother. That's why you're my sister. So that's the question that needs to be asked of every church. Is fellowship based on a common commitment to Jesus Christ and his word? Go ahead and advance. Is fellowship based on a common commitment to Jesus Christ and his word? See, there are some churches that pride themselves on allowing anyone to come in. Everyone, regardless of what you believe. Regardless of how you live. Regardless of your lifestyle. But a doctrinally pure church says, no, there are certain essentials that you must subscribe to. There's a lifestyle that you must agree to as the Bible teaches. Earlier in this book, remember in chapter 5, Paul addresses, there was a man there, that they said you should withdraw your fellowship because of his sexual lifestyle. Don't just turn your, your back to that. Don't just laugh at that if it's no big deal. It was a big deal. He wasn't even trying to align his life to the Word of God. So there needs to be a fellowship that's based upon a common commitment to Christ. When you become a member of his body, his church, it's part of that. It's you, you, you agree that you believe with these essentials of Scripture and you live your life accordingly. Well, number two, he continues in verse one. Now, brothers... And sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Underline the word remind. And the question that needs to be asked, is there a continued emphasis on the essentials? Is there a continued emphasis on the essentials? And Paul does this throughout his letters. Think about that. He even say, I remind you of what I told you before. And then he would. He would go on and he would, he would say it again in his letter. He's constantly reminding the people of the essentials. And it's not an accident that when you come to church here, you feel like you're hearing the same thing over and over again. Because you are. Because we will never get past the essentials of why we're here, what's important. Everything is based on the foundation of Jesus. I think a good example of this is just the phenomenon. I know you're familiar with this. You're aware of it. The influence that television has. How much time we spend in front of the screen. Latest statistics say that the average American family has a household TV on for eight hours plus a day. That's a lot of time. Researchers for the American Family of Pediatrics studied over a thousand adolescents aged 12 to 14 over a period of two years. They found that the teens exposed to high amounts of sexual media were 220% more likely to engage in sex between the ages of 14 and 16 and those who had only a limited exposure. Same statistics about violence and violent crime. It affects us. The point is what we're commonly exposed to affects us. It can help, but it ends up being our doctrine. It becomes our worldview. There's a law in cognitive psychology called the law of exposure. And the law of exposure states that your mind absorbs and then reflects whatever is exposed to the most repeatedly. 
That's why as parents, we keep telling our children things over and over again because we want them to be exposed to that. We want them to remember that. Norman Vincent Peale defined preaching this way. He said, it's reminding people over and over and then reminding them again what's important in life. So is there a continual emphasis on the essentials? Number three, he continues in verse one. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and of which you've taken your stand. So underline, taken your stand. Taken your stand. It reveals that doctrinal purity is not just information being taught. This is not just a concept to believe. This is something that you base your life on. It doesn't just engage your mind. It engages your heart and your actions follow suit. So a third question that needs to be asked, does the message challenge me personally? Well, we're going to be reminded of the essentials. It's not just, oh yeah, I've got that. And just like the flight attendant, you stop listening. It challenges you personally. The Bible says of itself, it's as sharper than any double-edged sword, able to penetrate between soul and spirit. And it should impact us in that way. It's doing surgery on us constantly. As you spend time in the Word, it challenges you. There is something wrong with preaching and teaching if you're continually walking away unchallenged. That's not Bible study. It doesn't just remind you of what you already know. It challenges you personally. I think about this because I hear the statements. Sometimes I say the statements. We know I've never thought of it that way. I didn't grow up hearing that. I didn't, uh, I've always heard it explained this way. Well, it doesn't matter what you've always heard. It doesn't matter what you grew up hearing. It's like, what does the Bible say? That's the question that needs to be asked. Because it should challenge you personally. If you're struggling with pride, as you spend time in the Word, then that church should be a place where you could come in and you could respond to that and say I want to live a life of humility if you're challenged with with lust and that's difficulty for you then church should be a place where you're confronted and say I want to live live a life of purity and what do I have to do so it's not just these concepts to believe it challenges me personally we struggle to be pure we struggle to be humble the challenge here to take a stand that's the goal of doctrinal teaching. Not just the transfer of information, but transformation. Paul says in verse 2, our fourth one, by, the gospel, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Underline the word gospel. Gospel just means good news. So the question then that should be asked, is the message presented as good news? And that's a good question to ask. Church should be a place where we can celebrate grace in our lives. It's an amazing thing. And it's worth celebrating. We can do nothing to save ourselves. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we are saved. But there's something wrong if the preacher, if the teacher, if it's always negative and it's always pounding, there's always a finger being pointed at you, and you walk out and it's just gloom and doom, and you just feel like you've been thrashed. That's not good news. It's the gospel. That's good news, and it should be presented that way. Look at verse 2 again. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly. Underline hold firmly. Hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. And here's the question. Is the call of the message to not only believe, 
but to follow. Not only believe, not just believe, but follow. Doctrinal purity does, does more than just call someone to listen, to just say, I believe. It calls them to respond and to follow. That's one of the reasons why we offer an invitation after every lesson, an opportunity to respond and to follow. It's not just about believing. It's about doing. Imagine going to the doctor because you've got chest pains that won't go away. And so the doctor runs a series of tests and he says your cholesterol level is extremely uh, high. And so he launches into this explanation about the plaque that is built up and how the, the uh, blood is not circulating and that you've got to do some things. And he mentions all this and he says if you don't do something, the likelihood of you having a heart attack or a stroke is just, just way up there. And then a month passes, or maybe a year passes, if you've not changed your diet, exercised regularly, maybe taken the medicine, you're not going to be any better off at all. It's not just about information. The question is, has anything changed? Does it make a difference in my life? It's following. And what we study Scripture on Sunday should make a difference on Monday and Tuesday, every day of the week. Number six. Continuing verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you. The phrase here I want you to catch is, what I received. I want you to ask this question. Is the message delivered by a genuine and authentic messenger? Is the message delivered by a genuine and authentic messenger? Paul said this about himself. I received it. I received it. The message I received. And it's important for a preacher or a teacher to receive it first. So to be one who is first challenged. To be the first to repent. The first to, to let that word wash over them. That's part of receiving the word. Listen to how the message paraphrases Matthew 7. Be very wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are... They're out to rip you off some way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not just what they say. That phrase he used there, Eugene Peterson wrote, that those who practice sincerity. You get the idea? It's a mask. It's a farce. That's why Paul continually, as he preaches and teaches, as he writes the words, he'll give us windows of how this has affected him. He, he shares about how this word has, has uh, the gospel has changed him. Think about it like this. You go to buy a car, and the salesman is giving you this, this big sales pitch. He goes on and on saying, Fords are the best. You need to buy a Ford. Fords are the best car out there these days. He goes on and on and on, and he convinces you. And about the time you're signing on the, signing on the dotted line, out of the corner of your eye, you see him get into his car to go home, and he's driving a Chevrolet. Like, wait a minute, something gives there. Or you go to a restaurant and your server says, okay, here are the specials for the day. And he talks about how good this one is. And it's, oh, and he just describes it. And you say, well, is it very feeling? He said, oh, I haven't had it. You want to know, does it make a difference in your life? Do you really believe what you're saying? So be careful of preachers and teachers who talk about patience and they yell at their own wife and kids or their own co-workers who talk about serving but you never see them volunteer for anything. You talk about generosity but they're not ones to give. Paul says it needs to come from a genuine and authentic messenger. 
one of my prayers, one of my commitments to you as a church is that I will never get up here and deliver a message that I have not been personally confronted with first. Has to be that way. So often before preaching, my week is filled with my own repentance, just wrestling with the text. Do I believe it? Because I have to believe it before I can say it. And that's not an easy process. Number seven, continuing in verse three. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. The phrase here to underline is first importance. If we were putting these questions in order of priority, we might put this one first because it would be the top of the list. And here's the question that we need to ask. Is the primary focus consistently Jesus? Is the primary focus consistently Jesus? If you've been coming to this church for a while, all this may seem unnecessary. I mean, isn't it obvious? I mean, it's who we are. It's what we teach. It's what we sing. It's on our sign. I mean, maybe it goes without saying. But in more and more churches, there's a trend where it's filled with good things, but not necessarily Jesus. I think we need to be careful about that. Paul says this has got to be first importance. And then he gives them the message. Verse 3 and following. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. And the last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. If you know the story of Paul, you know that he wasn't a follower of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, that Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, had that special revelation, that special moment, so that Paul could become an apostle. And so Paul is just telling us it's all about Jesus. This is of first importance. He came, he lived, he died, he came back from the grave. Charles Spurgeon says that whenever he preached, he would take the text and he'd make a beeline for the cross. Because everything points to the cross. Everything before and everything after. It points to the cross. At a church I once served, a few years after I left, they were looking for a preacher. There's one man that seemed to be wanted by so many, but not everyone. And one of his critics didn't like him. And when asked why, and he said of this preacher... All he ever talks about is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And he meant that as a criticism. Well, they hired this Jesus preaching preacher, and the church is blessed because of that. Because that is what we should be preaching about. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. For number eight, go back to verse three and four. The phrase I want you to catch is, according to the Scriptures. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So the question that we must always ask, is the message based on the Bible? Is the message based on the Bible? And it should never, ever be an exception to this. Every sermon that's ever delivered should have at its foundation the Word of God. Without the Word of God as our foundation, we have nothing to say you have so many other things you could be doing 
and you shouldn't even be here. If the message is not based on the Word of God, there's a pillar of the Reformation that we looked at a few weeks ago. And if you've studied church history, you might remember these. The one we talked about a couple of weeks ago is Solo Dio Gloria, to God alone be the glory. But there's five pillars. Another of those is Solo Scriptura, that Scripture is the ultimate authority. Now, there's all kinds of authority, government, family, but God is the ultimate authority. Scripture is the ultimate authority. It's the supreme court of truth. It's the truth of which all other truths are gauged. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 2 and 3. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So Paul tells young Timothy, you preach the word. Make that a commitment to the church. It may be uncomfortable, but you preach the word. It may not be popular. We understand that, but preach the word. It may not be politically correct. The day may come, folks, and we can't meet in a building and openly teach, even in this country. We may be in home churches with the shades pulled, hoping not to get called. But we still must be committed to preach the Word, whether it's legal or illegal. Here's what Paul says next in verse 9. For I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Underline least of the apostles. And here's the question. Is the message taught with the spirit of humility? Is the lesson taught with the spirit of humility? Beware of preachers or teachers who do not realize how sinful they are. Paul calls himself the worst of sinners. So be careful of the one who thinks they're doing God a favor by speaking for them. Because it's all about God's grace. And that's number 10. In verse 10 it says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what I preach, and this is what you believed. This is pure doctrine. The phrase I want you to catch, the grace of God. And the question is this. Does it all come back to grace? Does it all come down to grace? Is it all about God's grace? C.S. Lewis related a time where he was at a British conference that was studying the different religions and comparing them. And there were several breakout sessions. There's one session that he was not a part of. And the question that they were discussing was, does Christianity have anything that makes it unique from all the others? And so in that discussion, they were throwing out different ideas. One said, well, what about the incarnation, that God came to earth as a man? Well, so there's some others that claim that. What about the resurrection? Is that unique to Christianity? Well, other religions will claim some form of a resurrection. So they're just debating, is there really anything unique to Christianity? And C.S. Lewis walked into the room, and so they posed the question to him. We're trying to find out if there's anything unique about Christian faith. And C.S. Lewis, very quickly, just replied, of course. I know exactly what it is. It's grace. It's the grace of God. You won't find that in any other 
faith at all. No other religion teaches the grace of God where His love is unconditional and His gift of salvation is free through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the ultimate question then, have you responded to pure doctrine? To the truth? I looked at one list that 10 ways to identify a genuine Rolex and quickly tried to read through them and I really couldn't appreciate it unless you had a Rolex right there with you and I knew better to ask any of you if you had one. But there was something to me that was not on that list that would be the most telling. Not the movement of the second hand or, or the magnification over the date or some serial marking that maybe the, the, the numbers were a little too close together or had made in China. All these things were mentioned. To me, the question, how much did it cost? To me, that's the obvious thing. If you got it for 20 bucks off the street, it's not real. And if it is real, you got another problem. How much did it cost? You want to know what is pure doctrine? It's what it cost. Because God, His Son, His one and only Son, that's what it costs. That's an important question as we talk about the gospel. And it goes both ways. Salvation is free, but yet it costs. What does it cost you to respond? What does it cost you to follow? What does it cost you to believe? What does it cost you to wear the name of Christ? We need to be committed to what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 about what is pure doctrine. And then make sure as we're living our life that we're taking up our cross and following Him. Tonight we offer the invitation to anyone to be able to, as we said earlier, to respond and to follow. If you're ready to name the name of Jesus, we're here to, to, to hear your confession. To, as you repent of your sins, let them be washed away in baptism. We'll be the first to hug and congratulate you as you come out of that grave clean, washed, and God gives you the gift of His Holy Spirit. Or if we can just pray for you to have ears of discernment, a heart that can examine what you hear and to know what is truth, if we can encourage you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing?